Welcome into Two Point Drafts, Mike. We're, this is the remote edition. How are things going? Oh, things are obviously going terribly, it seems. <laughs> uh, the technical difficulties at the moment. Um, dude, it was a wild day. A wild first day. Rethinking uh, mock draft 5.0 here. It's it's just threw it all in the threw it all in the trash basically. Yeah, it's been a wild first day of free agency, and uh, it sucks that we're not together to hear it all, man. You're gonna be you're gonna be we're, you're gonna be in your house. I'll be my own. But let's I want to dive in to start the podcast with some free agency day one winners and losers. I'm gonna go ahead and kick it off with my winner, an obvious one to start here. It's the Arizona Cardinals, Kyler Murray. Cliff Kingsbury, that entire offense, bringing in DeAndre Hopkins and a fourth-round pick for David Johnson, a second-round pick, and a fourth-round pick. You said it on the timeline. This might be the most lopsided trade you've seen in your eight years at PFF. I mean, this is just such a huge win. The Arizona Cardinals trying to get the most out of Kyler Murray on a rookie contract, trying to get the most out of this offense and what Cliff Kingsbury could do. I mean, this is just such a great move for Arizona. Yeah, uh, what the... What the hell is Bill O'Brien and the Texans? What are they doing? <laughs> so, like, I I get the re, the, the supposed reasoning. The, the supposed reasoning is he wanted a new contract. They weren't willing to give it to him, but it's like he's still under contract. I, I get that you a guy can say he wants a new contract and that you deal him because you don't want to deal with that headache. But he had three years left on his deal. Like, I, I think Arizona is going, going to give him a new deal. Maybe that was like part of the negotiations, whatever. But he had three years left on his new deal. Negotiating, like letting a guy hold out that early on before he comes up for free agency is just bad business. And then to give into it and get nothing back, not nothing back, but a second rounder back in return when you just had the precedent of Odell Beckham on a far, far more lucrative contract last year, getting a first rounder in return is absurd to me. The fact that you couldn't recoup that kind of value and that you threw David Johnson into all this, who you literally don't want on his deal right now. Like they were <laughs> going to cut him. No team wants David Johnson's contract. Like that almost, uh, I think Timo was joking around on Twitter that when it first was reported that David Johnson got traded from Arizona to the Texans, that the Texans also would get a draft pick if they took on David Johnson, because that's, you know, kind of where he's at in terms of value with the contract. So to give back a fourth rounder for this, like this to me is one of the, the most head scratching moves I've ever seen. And it's kind of in a long line now of head scratching moves that the Texans have been making via trade. Yeah. When this was first reported, I thought it was going to be much like a Brock Osweiler situation and that the Cardinals are offloading David Johnson and the Texans receiving draft capital on top of that, because no one wants that player or that contract. David Johnson was benched for Kenyon Drake last year. Like not even it's it's a bad situation to see that DeAndre Hopkins was one involved in this trade and only shipped off for a second round pick in value is just absurd. Give me a winner so far. That wasn't a free agent winner, but of this day one, give me a winner on your end. I will have to go with uh, the San Francisco 49ers because getting the number 13th overall pick back for DeForest Buckner is absolutely like a steal. Last year, Frank Clark probably had more sort of, you know, intrinsic value and edge player uh, had been productive and they only get back. What was it? Pick 29 or whatever. Casey gave up to the yep. CLC Hawks for him to get 13 overall for a guy like Forrest Buckner, who really like, yes, he's valuable to them, but he's almost redundant in terms of, you know, when D Ford is healthy, when DeForest Buckner, or excuse me, when Eric Armstead is healthy, who they resigned earlier in the day as well. Uh, there's not, there's too many mouths. Like they can't all be on the field at once. So he's not going to have as much value to 
them in San Francisco as he might too in Annapolis. And number 13 overall, like you can get maybe a Jerry Judy there, maybe a CD Lamb there, maybe even a Javon Kinlaw, who in a couple of years might be as good as DeForest Buckner. So uh, there is a lot of reason to think that the 49ers getting 13th overall to save a bunch of a big cap hit that they would have had to take with DeForest Buckner on the roster uh, is a big win for them. I have them listed as a huge winner as well. And the deal was deal Buckner, uh, the deal dealt DeForest Buckner for the 13th overall pick. And they saved $12.3 million against the cap in 2020. Like they saved that money with that trade. They also avoid DeForest Buckner's new contract is $20 million average per year. They saved that and they signed Eric Armstead at a much cheaper deal, 17 million average per year. I mean, this is just a huge win for the San Francisco 49ers. I don't necessarily see it as a loss for the Colts though. I don't think it's a huge loss for them. However, my stance is if you're going to trade that 13th overall pick away because you're in win now mode, because you're going after a Phillip Rivers or a Tom Brady, whatever they're trying to do at the quarterback position, why not trade it for a position of higher positional value? Something like a Stefan Diggs or a receiver or offensive tackle. Like there's just, there's other positions that I think matter more and are worth this type of money, worth this type of selection. I think if the Colts were indeed in win now mode, it would have made more sense. Yeah. I mean, just think about even pairing together two free agents that are already gone for about $10 million a year. Like you have to think that has more of an impact than one guy at 20 plus million that you also gave up first rounder for. Uh, I get why, like I understand the reasoning. And again, it comes back to the same reasoning that they gave up the chiefs gave up Frank Clark. It's because you think you're close. They have to be, they have to be getting, you know, Philip rivers or someone at quarterback to make this Mm -hmm. deal or else it's going to look very, uh, it's going to look very bad in retrospect, if not, but then you better maximize it. You know, you better take advantage of it. They better be pretty damn good this year uh, to justify the trade that they made. All right. I'm going to bring up another winner. And I think maybe this is, yeah, day one, Baltimore Ravens, they, they, they trade for Calais Campbell for just a fifth round pick, which I mean, this guy is ranked inside the top five at his position in PFF grade over the past three years to get him for a fifth round pick is absurd. Yes. It costs them a, a little bit of money, but this is another team. The Baltimore Ravens are another team they're in a position to be trying to get these type of players for day three picks because they know they're close because they think they can win with the window they do have with Lamar Jackson. I'm also going to throw this in there trading away Hayden Hurst, Hayden Hurst and a fourth round pick for a second round pick and a fifth round pick is a fantastic job by the Ravens front office. They know they're not going to get, they, they kind of missed on Hayden Hurst to kind of say that. And then to accrue value, a second round pick in return for Hayden Hurst, I think is very, very impressive. Baltimore Ravens with two trades, Calais Campbell and trading away Hayden Hurst, I think are big winners early on. I mean, that's almost the exact same trade that the Texans gave for DeAndre yeah. Hopkins. You know, that's almost <laughs> the exact same value. Like you got a second rounder. Yes, it's a little later in the second rounder in the second round. And yes, it was only a fifth round that you got, uh, got back instead of a fourth. But dude, like that is that's a lot of value for a guy who really did nothing as a first rounder and is already 26 years old. Like there's not a lot to uh, hang your hat on there. I don't. As I don't hate it from the Falcons perspective. They had two second rounders in this year's draft because of the Patriots, Muhammad Sanu trade. So you can get rid of one of them. And I think it more sort of shows what the NFL thinks of this tight end class. And obviously yeah. we're not super high on it either, but the fact that they think that Hayden Hurst, what they can get for a second rounder is going to be much, much better than what you'd get at the tight end position in the second round in this year's draft. And I can't argue with that. I, I think I'd have to agree with that. Uh, even though I'm not the biggest Hayden Hurst fan. And, and I do think in the Falcons offense, it does utilize the tight end. So th- there is, uh, there is some, you know, reason behind this deal, but second rounder, man, I, I, I probably wouldn't have done the deal, but uh, the Falcons are better off for it. All right. You have more, one more winner to highlight. Yeah. I'm going to, one of my favorite deals from day one 
and I'm surprised this one got signed on day one. And it's Nick Kwiatkowski, the Bears linebacker, going to the Raiders, three years, 21 million. That's the perfect sort of range. And this is the perfect, this is what I love about free agency. This, these are the deals I love in free agency. The stop gap, you're not getting, you know, you know you're not getting a, you know, an elite player. Nick Kwiatkowski is not going to turn overnight into Bobby Wagner anytime soon. What you're getting is not to hear Whitehead. You know, <laughs> what you're getting yeah. is the fact that you don't have to pigeonhole yourself into a Kenneth Murray, a Patrick Queen in round one. You're getting that sort of flexibility to explore other positions on the roster and go best player available, knowing that your linebacker position is still going to be solid. Like it's not going to be a liability on your roster. So deals like that to me are what free agency are for. Packers made a couple moves like that in terms of signing Chris Kirksey and Rick Wagner at right tackle. That that's what this should be all about. The high level guys obviously get the, you know, the name recognition, but these moves have just as much value in my opinion. I would agree 100%. I think these smaller moves are somewhat, they, they don't bite you in the butt down the road. These exactly. are the moves that you don't say, like, Oh my gosh, why did we spend all that money? Like Nick Kwiatkowski yeah. is either going to deliver above expectation or still be an average player. And you did not spend big for him. So I would agree there. I'm going to jump to the losers. And I think losers may be a bit aggressive on day one. I think these are just moves that I disliked and I'm going to move quickly past the Houston Texans. I mean, this was a huge loss for them. The fact that they're bringing on David Johnson and his contract to that offense and only received a second round pick in exchange for DeAndre Hopkins. Again, it's just a, it's a huge miss. In my opinion, I think you could have gotten better value from DeAndre Hopkins. What was wild. Ian Rappaport came and said that Hopkins for a while, which one is freaking absurd Two, He said he was only going to trade DeAndre Hopkins. If he was blown away by a deal, this is the <laughs> deal that blew you away. Are you absurd? Like that? What is going on? Like I, I, I'm still just so amazed by it. Houston Texans still, still a loser over with me. a slight breeze, apparently. <laughs> but and the other loser I have are, is the Cleveland Browns. I think this is just a move I did not love. Making Austin Hooper the highest highest paid tight end in football is just not a move I can get on board with. I think a lot of his production in Atlanta was schemed, was against open holes Dude. in zone. I just don't I don't see allocating all that money to Austin Hooper making a ton of sense for the Browns. That's the thing. It's like, did no one watch Austin Hooper's like tape? Like I get that he put up yards, but did anyone watch how it got done? Like it was, he was, it was all eyes are on, you know, Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley on the outside. And there's just like space over the middle of the field, whether it's off a of play action or him running the seam. And they're just like any, pretty much every tight end. That's why like people are saying they upgraded by getting a Hayden Hurst because any tight end can run the route tree that he was running and put up the yardage he was running. It was not anything, you know, above what you would expect. And so, Man, to pay him the most, like I get that Kevin Stefanski, two wide, two tight end sets, big part of that offense. You needed it. And again, it's just kind of speaks to what teams think of this tight end class. No one's, there's not going to be an impact guy year one, but man, Austin Hooper, like just on paper is not worth being the highest paid tight end in football. That's all I have to say about that. All right. Give me, give me your next loser. Next move that you disliked on day one. Again, you're always getting better in free agency. So it's difficult to really kick someone when they're down or kick someone saying this is a terrible, terrible move. But I will say there's a lot of reasons that the Dolphins signing Eric Flowers is a bad move. And one <laughs> is the fact that you are in this, in this situation with a lot of cap space and a lot of, you know, picks to play with Miami, you should be targeting valuable positions, offensive guard, not a valuable position by any means. I get that the Dolphins have had some of the worst guards uh, in recent memory. have been absolutely awful there. Yes. But 
Eric Flowers has been bad throughout his career as well. Like he's took a step forward this year and only had a 64.2 overall grade at guard. Uh, ranked 30th among guards. You ranked 30th yes. among guards in overall grade. So you paid an average guard $10 million a year. And the MO, the knock on Eric Flowers throughout his entire career was that he's lazy, that he gets his money and then he goes home and doesn't work anymore. You just gave him his money. <laughs> now we'll see what happens in the future. But like there's, I think, there's something to the fact that the year when he was not getting paid anything and the chips were on the table, you finally see a career year, giving him a $20 million guaranteed contract after that might not get the best results. Man, that is tough. I agree that maybe not. Like, I think you, you started that off great saying, you know, it's hard to highlight someone as a big loser, but that's definitely one of the moves I've disliked from day one. All right, let's get back to two point drafts, huh? Let's get back to the 2020 NFL draft. Free agency is going to take us away from some things, but we do got to dive into this edge defender class. We're going to try and run through this quickly. We got what, 26, 27 names to get through that are, that are in the 2020 NFL draft guide. All edge and elite subscribers have access to the 2020 NFL draft guide. And if you don't this week and next week, you can save 25% off on any subscription using promo code NFL 20 to get your draft guide, to get access to the free agency board, access to all of Mike's and myself's work. It, it's a very good deal this week. Definitely looking forward to doing that. With that being said, let's kick off this edge defender overview with Chase Young. We've said so many good things about this guy. He's the number two overall player on our board, the best edge defender in this class. And honestly, it's not even close. Yeah, Chase Young. I, I just, there's not a lot more to say about him. I, I said I was done watching his tape and like last November, I lied. I've watched some <laughs> of his tape this spring, but it, it really is like, he's as good as I've seen. And I think he hits the ground running. Like not a lot of edge. I actually wrote an article last week about, you know, how not a lot of rookies hit the ground running. Not a lot of rookies are good uh, in the PFF grading system year one. It just doesn't always happen, but I fully expect Chase Young to be that sort of outlier and hit the ground running year one. He's just that good, that freakish and that talented already. Like the guys that have succeeded year one are really good with their hands. Chase Young. I mean, he's as good as the Bosa's with his hands coming out. I would agree. I mean, I mean, there's just not enough good things you could say about this guy. One of the more polished edge defenders we've seen He's a freakish athlete. It's unfortunate. He didn't test the combine because I think he would have like literally lit it on fire. He didn't give us the opportunity. I also wish we could have yeah. seen Caleb on chase on test at the combine. There were other athletic freaks there that did not test. That is though, that is a conversation worth having. I guess we have it now, but like, we're not going to get testing on so many guys this, this year between the combine being a shit show with the night testing and the agent just pulling guys out left and right. And to now coronavirus pretty much canceling any sort of in-person meetings that are going to happen. You're not going to get athletic testing numbers on about Half, half, over half of the prospects, over half of the guys yeah. that are going to get drafted, really, uh, you know, obviously there are far bigger consequences to coronavirus that are impacting people around the world. But purely from a football perspective, uh, it's going to be kind of like a blip on a radar that people are going to be like, look back 30 years from now and be like, why are there no numbers from this? And it's, it is just interesting to see how it kind of changes maybe the guys who are the freaky athletes like the Caleb on chase Maybe they don't get drafted as highly because maybe they don't have those numbers that they put up. That I have I, a take on that. I have okay. a take on what, why, why would you not do the Derek Brown route? Take a video of yourself running this three cone and send it to the teams. I honestly don't know why, like this is, this is 2020. I agree that the Maybe media won't get access to all the numbers, but I saw Ian Rapport mentioned it. He said, they think, he said, teams think they'll be able to get some of the players they want to send videos and those things. It's like, why wouldn't you, if you are this kind of day three flyer, record yourself doing all the major drills and send it to every team possible. I, I think that's exactly what I would do. I know that, 
doesn't help the media in any way. We're not going to get those times, but I do think those players, like those day three flyers that are going to get affected by this. I do think there's an option. I think they're still going to be negatively affected, but I do think there's an option to send the tape, send the tape of you send running it. three cone, 40 yard dash in central, just send it. And it went I, down I bet, I was, I bet they do. And it's, it's the only thing is like, it's unfortunate that we not being in the behind, you know, team walls yeah. will ever get to see those. Yep. All right, let's jump to the next edge defender on this list. He did not test well at the combine. It's a big reason why he dropped down the board a bit. It's Iowa edge defender AJ Epinesa. This guy went to the combine, did not turn in great, you know, great testing from a drill standpoint. We didn't expect him to test well, but he tested even below that expectation. Still a first round player on our board, still wins with power, still wins with technique. There's still a lot to like with him, but I do admit that the ceiling is probably limited athletically. Well, don't be talking about athletic ceiling limited. He's <laughs> He's still so like, here's the thing. Athletically, he's no worse than DeForest Buckner. Like he tested out better. Yes, he's a little lighter. And uh, DeForest Buckner was older. So maybe he could put on 10 pounds in a year and test out about where DeForest Buckner did coming out, which I I mean, that's his upshot, though, is the fact that he has to be an interior guy. Buckner was not winning off the edge consistently in the NFL. That just wasn't going to be his game. So I think that is Epinesa, what he has to do if he wants to carve himself out a role that's worthy of, you know, being what 19th here on our draft board where he is, it's going to be to be that interior sort of guy. What, what used to be called, you know, the three, four defensive end, the five tech. Now it's kind of more, the lines are blurred more on that. Every you know scheme has their kind of areas where they line guys up in. But I do think that Epinesa has to be more on the inside than, you know, well outside the uh, tackles. So uh, I think that's where he wins. Uh, I think he wins with his hands. He wins with power. He doesn't win with athleticism, but you would have liked to see him be more athletic. Like it is, he is bottom of the barrel comparing him just to edge defenders in terms of athleticism. Yep. Yep. All right, let's move to number 22 on BFF's big board. It's Curtis Weaver, currently edge three, and he's been edge three for a while. We've had a handful of podcast diehards, two for one drafts, diehards asking, is Curtis Weaver still your edge three? Is Curtis Weaver still your edge three? And yes, he is. The production has been absurd. I tweeted this out, I think the other day, you know, removing screens, play action passes and passes within 1.5 seconds of the snap. Curtis Weaver has the best PFF pass rush win rate of any edge defender in college football at 34.8%. Yes, it's against bad competition. He's beaten up on some bad offensive tackles and also beaten up on some bad tight ends and running backs. But the production is absurd. He, his PFF pass rushing grades rival those of Chase Young, yes, against bad competition. And he tested well in the cone. The seven-second cone was a very good time for Curtis Weaver. He's got good Ben. There are things. I think he's getting slept on in this class. Let's just be honest. I, I'm fuck, I'm right there with you. Like the, Yes, he's getting <laughs> slept on. The, the interesting thing about him is that he didn't rush. He wasn't out. He's a three, four outside linebacker in that Boise state offense. He dropped into coverage over a hundred snaps, which I question whoever the defense coordinator is. That's dropping this guy in the coverage over a hundred yes. snaps over the course of a season. But that point aside, I mean, like, he, so his numbers, the fact that he had 15 sacks this year, 13 hits, 31 other hurries, uh, is even more impressive because he was not just pinning his ears back and attacking. He's dropping into coverage a lot in that, uh, you know, Boise state scheme. So, uh, the numbers don't even do him justice in terms of just how dominant he was. So, and then the seven second three come, I, I said this on the forecast the other day I, with edge defenders projecting to the projecting to the NFL, you kind of have to have a trump card, a way to win that, you know, is going to work in the NFL. Like you don't have to be an all around uh, great athlete to win off the edge in the NFL. 
but there has to be a way that you're very, very good at that you know is going to translate to feel good about a guy. And to me, with Curtis Weaver, it's that ability to win the edge, that bend around the edge with a 7.73 cone and with how consistent he was at Boise State with it, I think that's going to translate. Like, I would put money on that translating. And again, we to reiterate the point, we've not seen a guy as productive as Weaver since Miles Garrett, like in terms of back-to-back seasons, rushing the passer. Yes, it's a little different level of college football, but no one, no non-Power 5 guy has done it. So that's there's still a little unprecedented in that regard. Next guy on the list, I don't think gets enough love for his production. He's actually right behind Curtis Weaver on the big board at 23 overall. It's Notre Dame edge defender Julian Aquara. And when I pulled the rankings, Curtis Weaver over the past two years has the best PFF pass rush win rate when you remove screens, play action passes, and throws within 1.5 seconds of the snap. Second is Chase Young. Third is Julian Aquara. This guy's production has been good over the past two years. And also, his PFF pass rushing grade has improved every year of his career since, you know, joining Notre Dame or going on to Notre Dame. I think Julian Acora, freakish athlete. Bruce Feldman has said that. We've said that. I wish he tested. You could have seen how athletic this guy is. He rivals Caleb on chase on in that way. I still think needs polish, but guy's still been very productive while also raw. Yeah, and if you built an edge defender, it would look a lot like Julian Acora from a physical traits standpoint. He's six foot four, 34 and three quarter inch arms, 252 pounds, 10 and a quarter inch hands. Didn't obviously didn't test besides the bench at the combine, but with 34 and three inch arms, he did 27 reps on the bench. Like he has the strength in him. It just, you know, Daniel Jeremiah said it when we had him on, he's like, he runs hot and cold. Like his leverage is very inconsistent and it is like, I'm not going to debate those, but the fact that he has inconsistent leverage plays with inconsistent leverage yet the stat you mentioned there still won at a rate comparable to chase young. still won at the highest rate on, you know, the pass rushers in this draft class, like my, my thing is like, get him to play with better leverage and see what happens then. Like, because he has all the tools to get the job done, his brother, was a late bloomer. Romeo Aquar had his play his best football uh, once he got to the NFL. Was not great at Notre Dame when he was there. I think we could see a similar sort of developmental curve from Julian. That's why we're high on him. Yep, I agree. I'm with you. And I, we talked to Daniel Jeremiah on a previous podcast. If you guys haven't listened to that, I would encourage you to go back and do so. But he's not super high on Julian Aquara. Said he's inconsistent. We know he's inconsistent. But even when you look at the two-year PFF pass rush win rates, this guy's up there. With the best, you know, with the best in college football. So let's jump to this next guy who a lot of people are high on. See him as a first round player in this class. It's Caleb on chase on of LSU right now, edge five and the number 46 overall player on PFF's board. Love the athleticism. I, I, I've seen people say he's got a, a jet pack on his back on his first step. I would agree with that. This guy's super explosive. Really love what he brings to the table from a athletic tool standpoint, but why hasn't the production been there? He has the high-end reps against some good offensive tackles in college football, but still very inconsistent for Chase Hawk. All right, one second. We have news, draft-related news, that will be affecting the top 10 here. Jack Conklin goes to the Browns. Oh, wow. Year, $42 million deal. So very possible that that might not be offensive tackle there at number 10 anymore. Now, it could be still offensive tackle for the Browns at number 10 because they'll more than likely be a good one waiting for them. But the rumors with Odell Beckham being traded, could could that be where, you know, Judy, CD Lamb end up falling? Because that would be that would be an interesting sort of uh landing spot for those two. Do you think Jack Conklin to the Browns keeps offensive tackle away for the for them at, at, at that pick at number 10? I don't know if it does. I, I think it I, opens I, it up. I think it opens okay. it up at least. I'm not saying okay. it keeps it away entirely, but I do think that opens it up. Obviously they need two. 
But, I, I can see them double dipping. I can see them yeah. going Jack Conklin, keeping him at right tackle and still drafting the best left tackle available. Maybe it's Andrew Thomas, Tristan Wurst, Jedrick Wills at 10th overall and really reshaping that offensive line and, and buying into this kind of win now mode. Get Conklin, grab yourself Andrew Thomas, who's one of the more pal- polished offensive tackles here. You just made Austin Hooper the highest, pi- t- highest paid tight end in football. I mean, this offense, it's better have no holes <laughs> come 2020. I was going to say, man, they spent a lot of money and I'm not sure they got that much better. Like they got better, but like Conklin, Conklin Hooper kind of like Conklin's just fine. Like Hooper's just fine. Like I, you didn't really get superior impact here. I don't know. We'll see. I will, but say I, I, this, I will say this, Jack Conklin, a fine offensive tackle does a lot for you. A fine tight end does yeah. not absolutely nothing for you. That's, and you yeah, paid way too much for the fine tight end. I think getting in a fine offensive tackle will help your offense more than a fine tight end. All right. Give me chase on. We talk about chase on incons- inconsistent from a production standpoint, but he does have all these athletic tools that people are buying into really calling him a first round talent in this class. Yeah. So my biggest thing is he, he does not have long arms. Caleb on chase on 31 and a quarter inch arms uh, or 32 and a quarter inch arms. Excuse me. That's, that's well below average for the, t- for the edge defenders in the NFL, the average length of the top 10 highest graded pass rushing edge defenders in the NFL last year was over 34 inch arms. And he's at 32 and a quarter. The only guy in the top 25 with that short arms was Shaq Barrett. So he is very much on the low end in that regard. And I think that speaks to some of that inconsistency that you see, because when you have short arms, you got to be perfect like that. Your hand placement has to be perfect or else you get locked up by opposing offensive tackles. And yes, he plays with great leverage. Yes. He's good against the run. Yes. He has the bend that you want for the position, but I'm not sure that, you know, people are saying, Oh, he can be Daniel Hunter where he wasn't productive in college and then turns down the NFL. Like Daniel Hunter was on a different level, you know, in terms of length, uh, you know, ideal traits for the position. I just think that Kalon, uh, I'm not going to say he's, uh, limited in necessarily like I, I think he could still be a productive player in the NFL, but it's just risky to me to go with a guy who's as inconsistent as he was at LSU. And he had, he had a fairly favorable situation there in terms of rushing the passer. Like he knew he was going to be able to pin his ears back a good number of times a game with how many leads they had and to not be as productive uh, as some of the other guys in this class. Uh, I'm just like, I'm going to worry about that. Like, I'm not going to take that risk in round one. Uh, I'm just not going to, I'd rather take that on day two somewhere because with round one, you can get yourself a surefire hit at a value position. Most times I don't see chase on being uh, anywhere close to surefire at this point. Yes. He is young though, under 21 years old. Still Mm -hmm. that obviously plays a factor. And when you bring up the length, I think that's what gets me more and more on the side of, you know, I think there's this range of outcomes with Caleb on chase on obviously the highest being what Daniel Hunter has kind of developed into the lowest being kind of what you saw with Barkevis Mingo, you know, him, him having similar, you know, similar traits and things like that coming out of LSU. And I think he's going to fall in between those range of outcomes. I don't see him reaching the, the height of Daniel Hunter though. When you do bring up that length, when you do see the inconsistency, I, I think with Caleb on chase on top of day two, you feel comfortable about betting on his high end, him being that high end player. But in round one, there's other players maybe with higher floors than Caleb on chase on. All right. Jumping to number 61 on PFF's board, Daryl Taylor of Tennessee. There, there are some plays on his tape where I really get excited about Daryl Taylor. His grades aren't bad at either. I, I think I'm a fan of him in some ways, but again, inconsistent production, not up there with the best in this class. Yeah. Uh, I actually, he's a guy I haven't heard like anything about in this pre-draft process. No one like really, usually like every single edge guy has like a fan that they're like, Oh, you know, Darrell Taylor, don't sleep on this guy. I haven't say, I haven't seen 
uh, anything like that from him. But I, I think he has a very NFL translatable game and that he wins with power, wins with a long arm bull rush. That's his go to does that consistently. And that's a very translatable move to the NFL because uh, like I've said before on this podcast, if you can't bull rush in the NFL, if you don't have that already in your toolbox, uh, people are just going to sit on the inside outside moves. You got to be a freak athletically to not have a bull rush in the NFL and still win consistently. So I think that bodes well for him that that's already his go-to move. We saw him improve a lot over the course of his career to the second half in this SEC schedule down the stretch here was the best football we've seen from him at any point. That's always good, but he's kind of just a stiff guy around the corner, uh, not going to win the edge consistently, uh, probably just more of a limited guy than some of the other, uh, you know, edge rushers in this class. Looking at his production in 2018, earned a 76.7 PFF pass rushing grade with 31 total pressures. And then this past year, an 87.5 PFF pass rushing grade with 45 total pressures. I, I mean, I just don't, maybe he doesn't get to that high end, but maybe there are some translatable traits that he does have. And a translatable game, I think, is a good way you put it. Let's jump to Etur Gross Matos, 63rd overall player on PFF's board, right there behind Daryl Taylor among edge defenders. I can't get on board with this guy. I mean, there are other players I'd rather have that are listed maybe even below him on PFF's current rankings just because Ichiro Gross Matos, I do see that ceiling. He does have some of these tools that people want, but he just hasn't, he hasn't really, I think maybe he's bought, you know, topped out at where he's been. I, I haven't seen him dr- drastically improve at Penn State. That always concerns me. Where are you right now with Gross Matos? Yeah, so I'm gonna actually going to lump him and the guy who's next on this list, Terrell Lewis from Alabama, kind of together in that they both, win the look the part contest. If, if you were to build edge defenders, it would look like Lewis and Gross Matos. Like they have the size, they have the length, they have the height, some explosiveness to them, but not, I wouldn't classify either as freaky athletes. Like they have good enough, uh, but both are just so unrefined with their pass rushing moves at this point. Like Gross Matos is just so inconsistent. He looks like he's kind of throwing moves just because, uh, that's what he was taught. Like he just got taught the swim move. I'm going to do the swim move. There's no real sort of rhyme or reason. Like he's not reacting to the offensive lineman. He's kind of just throwing it no matter what. And Lewis, Lewis had a little bit more of a plan, but he, he really was a guy who had that kind of high level, uh, no dominant games against lesser competition, better competition shows up and you just didn't hear his name getting called. He wasn't winning his one-on-one reps. So, uh, and then went to the senior bowl and didn't do much impressive during that week in the one-on-ones either. So both those guys, like again, edge rushing, you know, pass rushing is one position. There's one skill that it translates from college pros. If you're beating college offensive tackles at a high level, chances are you can do that in the pros as well. But if you're not doing it, that's a concerning thing because, uh, you know, they only get better in the NFL. They only get use their hands better. They're only more athletic. And so both these guys, I just, if you're drafting them in the first round, because you really need that edge rush, I would not be able to get on board with them. I'm actually glad you lumped these two guys together right now. You Gross Macho 63rd on PFF's board, Terrell Lewis 70th on PFF's board, two edge defenders. Both of these guys, not as productive as they should have been knowing the tools they have an 84.7 PFF grade in 2019 for Ito Gross Matos and a 79.6 overall grade for Terrell Lewis in 2019. And I think with each or gross Matos, I think it's obvious that he's raw, lacks the skill set, doesn't rush with a plan, needs to learn technique and learns to play the position at a higher level. With Terrell Lewis, I think a lot of it is injuries. I mean, this guy has struggled injuries for quite some time. That could be part of him like not developing into the premier pass rusher he is. But what concerns me the most with Lewis, even more so than you or gross Matos, he shows up the senior ball and doesn't look great. 
but he's chiseled. He shows up to the, the shirtless weight weigh in and looks fantastic. But then he gets on the football field and you just don't see him win a ton of one-on-ones that concerns me with Terrell Lewis. All right. Jumping to Josh Uchi, the Michigan edge defender, 70 sec, 72nd ranked player on PFF's board earned an 84.0 overall grade this past season played kind of a, a hybrid role for them. A little off ball linebacker edge defender mix Bl- blitzing at off ball. He was fantastic. Can he win as a pure edge defender at the next level? Yeah, Uchi's just, he's such a difficult projection for the reasons kind of you outlined there that he's undersized. He's 241. He came in at, uh, but he has good length for a guy that's undersized, I think almost 34 inch arms. Uh, so undersized, but has the length to maybe stay on the edge. But then when he won in college, it was a lot of the times as a blitzer against guards. And yes, he won at a super high rate, but it's like not necessarily projectable to what he'd be doing at the NFL. So I, I just don't know. He's one of those guys where Again, he's 72nd on our board because I really don't know what to make of him. We've seen a ton of guys who are undersized and are super productive in college fizzle out in the NFL because it's difficult. Like I said, with a couple guys ago, with Drell Taylor conversation where if you don't bull rush, if you have no threat of the bull rush, uh, you're just not going to tackles are going to sit on you. They're going to keep their arms wide as can be, leave their chest wide open just beg you to go through them. And if you're not going to be able to, they're just going to lock you up. They're just going to grab you, lock you up immediately once you try to execute a move. And so for me, that's kind of the worry with Uchi, but you you see reps on tape where, whether it's at senior bowl against Matt Peart, where he bull rushed him kind of back in the QB's lap. He got Tristan Wirfs a little bit. I wouldn't call it a pressure, but he bull rushed him a little bit back towards the pocket in that Iowa game. So you see a l- some of it from Uchi to get me on board, but I think he at minimum has that sort of off ball blitzer value to him. I think he's good enough athlete to move off ball to where uh, it's almost a safety net fallback for him. If you can't end up rushing the passer at the NFL level. All right, moving forward to Bradley and I, the Utah edge defender, you know, graded really well in 2018, jump dropped down to a 74.6 overall grade in 2019, the 91st ranked player on PFS board. This guy wins with his hands, wins with technique, but the lack of athleticism is a huge concern for Bradley and I. Yeah, I'll be honest. I just think I might be even still too high. I'm at 91. He might have to move down after this next uh, sort of reshuffling before the NFL draft, because I'm not sure where he's going to win. Like I said, with Weaver, you have to have a spot where, you know, a guy's going to win. And for as good as his hands are limited length, 32 and eighth inch arms and really no athleticism Four nine three forty, thirty one inch vertical jump. And he's not like big. 257 pounds. He's not a guy who's, you know, going to be winning with power at the next level. Seven, four, four, three cone. I just, Yikes. I don't think Yikes. it's going to happen. I know, man. It's like, I <laughs> don't seven, think four, gonna... four, three cone is an absolute disaster. He's just, it's not, I don't think it's going to happen with him, unfortunately. Uh, and I love his game. Love watching him play at Utah. And he beat up, you know, some good tackles. He beat up Austin Jackson. He beat up uh, Trey Adams who actually, you know, cl- classifying him as a good tackle might be a little generous, but yeah, Bradley and I, I just, I, again, I don't see where he wins in the NFL. Unfortunately, you, you say Bradley and I is going down on the next board here. I know a guy who's going to come up above him. It's Travis Gibson, the Tulsa edge defender. We had him on the podcast a few podcasts ago. Encourage you to listen to that. But this guy's produced at Tulsa an 87.2 overall grade in 2018 and 87.8 overall grade in 2019. And he was misused. I mean, we talked to him about why were you playing so much inside? He says, I think I play best at edge. And this, that's where the NFL teams want me to play. This guy was kicked inside playing like head up on the tackle, maybe more often than he should be. I think this guy can win the edge at the next level. And even at the senior bowl, 
there were a handful of reps where he's playing the edge and you kind of like what you saw. And then they kicked him inside and, and it was a little bit different. I think Travis Gibson misutilized at Tulsa. And I think in the NFL, his best football is ahead of him. Yeah, this is a dude who to me is just scratching the surface because uh, he really came out of nowhere this past year for 89.7 pass rushing grade, but it also came as a five tech, you know, in that Tulsa mm-hmm. offense. Like he is a, he was a three, four defensive end playing head up on tackles, which is not, you know, the role you're going to put a 261 pound guy in at the NFL. So he is an edge in the NFL level. Uh, he needs some more pass rushing moves. He really doesn't have much besides kind of like a rip at this point. That's his go-to. Uh, but you see the athleticism, you see the physical tools there, the length 33 and seven, eight inch arms, like it's all there. And it's all, it's all kind of very translated, you know, to a football field. Like I mentioned with that pass rushing grade that he's shown, but when you're talking about guys on, you know, day two, late day two, third round type of guys, not a lot of them work out at edge. Like it's not a hotbed. You can usually recognize edge talents early and they go early in the draft. So to have some of those sort of traits and some of those, you know, positives that you see from those early round edge defenders, but then to be able to get that on day three, to me, he's one of my favorite sort of under the radar sleeper prospects in this class. All right, Travis, moving from Travis Gibson to Kenny Willekes, the Michigan State edge defender, 107th ranked player on PFF's board, earned a 90.5 overall grade, the seventh best grade among edge defenders in 2018, dropped to a 79.4 overall grade in 2019. I need to ask you this. Is this guy just the high motor, you know, white edge defender that's coming out of Michigan State or is this guy like a Chase Winovich? You know, because like Chase Winovich, you saw the athletic he is white. You saw the explosion and, and he had great pass rush productivity, all those things with Willikus, not necessarily the production, but can he kind of follow that Chase Winovich mold? I got dogs barking at me over here too. This is a guy that I think can and will be a starter at some point in his career in the NFL. Now, will he be good? I have no clue. Uh, I, I'm not sure he possesses much of the athletic and physical tools that you want, but super hard nosed football player plays with great leverage. I mean, if you've seen his stance, you know how flexible he is. The dude puts his chin basically on the turf every single snap. It's kind of awesome to watch. Uh, he uses his hands really well as a pass rusher. He has a number of different moves already. Like I think he can start and play in the NFL. I'm just not sure you're going to get anything special out of him at you know the NFL level. You might just be getting you know kind of like Kyler Fackrell level play from him. All right, let's jump to Khalid Kareem, the other Notre Dame edge defender that played opposite of Julian Aquara. You're not as high on him, even though you're a former Golden Domer. This guy earned an 85.0 overall grade in 2019, six for four, 265 pounds, but he's not in the same level, not even in the same tier as Julian Aquara. Yeah, and so here's the thing, and, and it's Kareem, some guys I'm going to group together here, Alton Robinson from Syracuse, Mike Dana, the Central Michigan transfer to Michigan, Three guys who are power players in college. Like they they win with power, beating up, physically manhandling the offense tackles in front of them. They, they bull rush first. Uh, a lot of the moves are come off of that, push poles, that sort of thing. But they're just not like you better be to win it like that in the NFL. You better be Cameron Jordan. Like you better be mm-hmm. strong as shit. Like you better be an ox on the edge to win consistently, to consistently overpower offensive tackles. And I don't really see it from either of those three guys. I like mean, I just, you fell, you fell into that trap a little bit with LJ Collier last year because yes, you thought maybe he could player. be that Cameron Jordan. He could be that guy who could overpower everybody in front of him. And I think, you know, he obviously, obviously hasn't played a ton. Can't write him off yet, but <laughs> I mean, those th- th- that's where you are though. It's like, Hey, if you're not going to win with athleticism, you're not going to win with this speed and attack the edge. You better be, like you said, a Cameron Jordan that can just beat up dude. 
Yes, you better be a little bit stronger than Khalid Kareem, than yeah, Mike Dana, than Alton Robinson. It's funny you brought up Mike Dana. I had high hopes for him transferring from, what was it, Western Michigan? or Central Michigan. Central, Central Michigan. Fire up chips. Transferring from Central Michigan to the University of Michigan. I thought he was going to have better production, but he kind of took a step down with the increase in um, competition. All right, let's jump through these next three guys here. Let's talk Alex Highsmith, the Charlotte edge defender, 115th ranked player on PFF's board. Did this guy produce at a super high level at Charlotte? We even had some of the Clemson offensive linemen say he was the best player they went against all year because yeah. that just how good this guy was. Alex Highsmith earning high praise from his peers, also graded very, very well PFF. Yeah, he's kind of got the bad combination of being undersized and like middling athleticism, though. Checked in only 248 pounds, then he goes 4740, 33-inch vertical, 732 cone, 43 shuttle, like all just below average athleticism for that. So another guy to wear. Yes, he looks he's quicker than college off the tackles. Won a lot to the outside against, you know, a, a sophomore at Clemson who's, you know, 340 pounds at left tackle and Jackson Carmen. Like, yes, you're probably the best guy a sophomore who played in high school football in Cincinnati has ever faced, but that doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen when you get to the NFL, but he's the kind of guy like you bet on though, because he did come as a walk on, put on a ton of weight over the course of his career at Charlotte to remake himself into this edge defender. Didn't even play necessarily didn't play edge until this past year was more, uh, you kind of in the Trevis Gibson role. Uh, where he was out of position there at Charlotte back in 2018 and played the run really well that year, had a really good run defense grade. So in that perspective, there's a lot of good things in his corner. But again, like once you get into the hundreds here, talking about like fringe guys that you would bet on. Yep. All right. Speaking of the hundreds, I want to group all these Florida boys together here. Yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Bernard, Jabari Zuniga, those two boys from Florida. And then you have Jonathan Garvin and Trayvon Hill from the university of Miami, all in that range after like, you know, one thirty to one sixty range, these guys day three type of flyers, oh, man. And it's crazy because if you gave either gave Jonathan Greener, Jabari Zuniga's athleticism or gave Jabari Zuniga, Jonathan Greener's hands, you would have a first round prospect. Like you would like, if you could meld these two guys, you'd get a first rounder, but kind of on their own. Like Jonathan Greener is so, so limited athletically. And it was one where uh, if you watch him go up against Jack Driscoll, the Auburn offensive tackle, like he just can't get past Jack Driscoll. Like Jack Driscoll is just more athletic than Greener is. Greener only 263 pounds, 48740, 30.5 inch vertical jump. He just does not have the explosiveness to get to the edge in the NFL. And you look at his wins on tape there at Florida, a lot of inside moves, a lot of bull rushes. Inside moves just get locked down in the NFL. If you can't test the edge, if you can't win to the edge, the NFL level, you're just not going to be a super successful pass rusher. And so that's why I'm low on Greenard, 129 the board. Zuniga, just like he does not use his hands well at all. Like he is, he is the, like I talked about with Etor Gross Matos and Trell Lewis to where they just don't have the pass rushing moves yet. It's just not, not in their skill set. He is that times 10. Like he has no clue what he's doing with his hands as a pass rusher. And so he just Man. has not won at a high level. So those two are kind of opposites. And then Garvin, I kind of like in terms of uh, he uses his hands well. A young dude still. I think he only declared early coming out uh, of Miami, but he just has no get off. Uh, another guy to where if you're really going to be that limited off the line of scrimmage, 48240 he runs. Uh, I'm not sure what you're going to do at the NFL level. And then Trayvon Hill was like 230 pounds at the senior bowl. 
That guy, he's and not struggled an edge to win too. <laughs> yeah, that guy's not an edge back. That was very difficult to watch at the senior bowl, seeing him go against these offensive tackles and just repeatedly lose. I would say, I would say in the same boat, Jabari Zuniga. I mean, Zuniga was getting beat down by Ben Barch and the like. I mean, you didn't see a ton of wins from either of those players at the senior bowl moving through here, a handful of names left. Got to bring up Anthony Jennings of Alabama. You like him less than you do like Terrell Lewis, Anthony Jennings. I think another guy that's battled injuries, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I, I think with him, you've seen some of it on tape, but he's not the same level athlete as some of these other guys. Yeah. Another guy who's just limited athletically. He's got actually a number of pass rushing moves, uh, similar to Jonathan Greener and on the board. Actually, I put them right next to each other because they have, you know, they win in similar ways. A lot of inside moves, a lot of inside spins, uh, a lot of long arms. Uh, but again, he just doesn't have to get off like getting to the edge. It's been difficult for him. Had the, what was it? A broken, he had, he had a lower leg injury that really limited him back in 2018 was happened in the bowl game. I want to say back in the, after 2017, thought we we're going to see big things from him. Never really quite materialized. So Anthony Jennings, just another guy who late round or like, so him greenered, if, if they are starting for you, like if you put them in the lineup, you're not going to hate it. Like they can, they can, they can be on an NFL football field and still play the run. Oh my Lord. I am gotcha. in a dog pound here. Mike, but, I'm going to let you go off. I'm going to let, I'm going to let you go here. All right. Of these last guys, Carter Coughlin, Azur Kamara, James Smith, Williams, Olawole Batuku jr. And DJ Wanham. Who's your favorite of the group and why? I'm going to go with Carter Coughlin and to move him off ball to actual linebacker, because I think he has, you know, the movement skills. Some of the, all those other guys are, uh, just, they don't have, they're not football players. Like they don't have that sort of instinctual, you know, ability to take on blocks, that sort of thing. That's why they're so low on this list, despite being athletes. Coughlin's a good athlete, knows how to take on blocks, just so undersized and has limited length to stick on the edge. So I think if you move him off the ball, you could see some success from Carter Coughlin. He could actually have a role in the NFL. Those other guys, not so much. That's going to do it for Mike Renner and the Dog Pound live from the Dog Pound uh, for the Two Foreign Drafts podcast, the Monday edition. Bear with us with this audio. Bear with us with Mike and I not being in the same room. We are working through the tough times that is the coronavirus right now, but we are going to continue to deliver great time content, talking the NFL draft, talking free agency. Until next time, thanks, guys. Austin Gale, Mike Renner, Two Foreign Drafts.